Okay, at the um, at the end of Zechariah chapter twelve, God tells the people that uh, there's a day coming when He will pour out His Spirit, the Spirit of mourning. We talked about that before. Uh, repentance, uh, hearts of repentance, the Spirit of mourning. Uh, he said that they will mourn for the one who they have pierced, uh, and not just a dang. It's you know I'm sorry for what I did, but they'll mourn as a parent mourns for a child. They'll they'll be hurt to the heart uh, uh, for sin. They'll be convicted um, we saw that this this uh, this heart of repentance is a gift from God that has been fulfilled in the life death uh, of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and in fact the New Testament writers used that very verse in Zechariah mourning for the one you've pierced as directly related to the 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 crucifixion you know when the when the soldier pierced uh, Jesus's side so <clears throat> To be quite honest, mourning over sin and our actions that inevitably lead to uh, that or the the actions that led to the crucifixion of Christ. it's a good thing. Mourning over those things is a good thing. Uh, the man who has no conviction of sin in, in his life or uh, is not bothered by the fact that he can live you know, in direct defiance of God's commands, uh, that shows that he's not been born of God's Spirit. So... There is a there's a very real sense in which a hatred and hurting over one's sin is a good thing. Uh, it, it's the evidence that the Spirit's working in your heart. Now, you know, I'm sure we've all met the people who profess Christ but live, you know, just cavalierly in sin, believing that God's grace gives mankind a license to do whatever his uh, sinful heart wishes with impunity. Uh, But that kind of mindset is not the picture of a born-again believer. And then, but there's another side too. That's one ditch. Here's another ditch. Just like so many other parts of the Christian life, we have to have balance. There are also other people who are on the other side of the road who believe that... um, you know that they believe that you got to reach a certain level of repentance in order to actually obtain the forgiveness of God we we could say that these these people you know think you must have a perfect repentance in in order to uh, obtain salvation uh, maybe you've met somebody like this before these are the folks that are you know they continually doubt whether whether or not they've done quote unquote enough to be saved they always think that they they should be more more sorry for the wrong that they've done, and and the result of all this is that they live uh, defeated and in despair because the the standard for for reaching God's forgiveness is just too high. There is, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with mourning over sin. That's what the Spirit does in in our life. So that's the evidence that it's there. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing everything in our power to live holy before the Lord. In fact, I mean that's what God says that every believer will do. They'll have a desire to do that. Uh, when speaking of the new covenant that He will uh, bring upon His people, God says that He'd put a new heart in them and a new spirit, and He'll cause them to keep His commandments and obey his statutes that's ezekiel 36 26 through 27 um but there's also a point at which we must accept the fact that we cannot please god by any work that we do and that includes repentance when someone asks me how they can be sure they have repented enough to be saved uh, i always answer the same way you know no you haven't you know there's no way 
They say, you know, have I have I done enough? I'm gonna say no, no, you haven't done enough. How can I do enough? Well, you can't do enough. Uh, no one can repent enough to be saved. We we must simply turn from our sin and the dead works, you know, that and receive the forgiveness of of God's grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So, all that said, here in as we begin chapter thirteen of Zechariah, we're going to see. Uh, the prophet transition from the mourning over sin, which he said will will come about because of the spirit, um, which and we saw that in chapter twelve. Uh, he's going to transition from that to the cleansing power of God's grace through Jesus. And so, just like Jesus said, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." In the first verse. Here in chapter 13, we have the phrase that we saw continually cited in chapter 12, and which will be cited again and again in chapter 14, on that day, in that day. Uh, Verse 1 says, in chapter 13, says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So this chapter is connected with the one that came before. On that day, God will conquer the hearts of his people. We saw it in chapter 12 and, and cause them to mourn over their sin and mourn for the one whom they've pierced. But also on that day, there will be a fountain open for the cleansing of the people. The, this cleansing speaks of the forgiveness of sin and the bringing of man into right relationship with God. But when you think back <clears throat> To all the the types and shadows of the Old Testament, there were lots of different kinds of cleansings in Israel's Levitical code. Uh, usually, the sprinkling of blood through sacrifice was was used to symbolize the cleansing of sin, so that the people could come before the Lord and, and be forgiven. Uh, there were also many different kinds of washings, uh, baptisms, if you will, uh, with water that made the person ritually clean before. Uh, uh, before God, clean for service to, to God. If you if you look in Leviticus 16 uh, through about the first five verses, you see that the priest would offer the blood of an animal sacrifice, and then he would cleanse himself with a ritual washing of water. Uh, when Zechariah speaks of a fountain opening up for the cleansing of the nation, you can't help but think about these priestly rituals being in the forefront of his mind. I mean, he himself was a priest. So uh, the fact that this uh, connection might have been lost on him, it just defies uh, credulity. Uh, these ideas were deeply ingrained, ingrained in him. I mean, he was, a, he was a priest who was working in them every, every single day. But the idea of cleansing was so established in terms of, of the new covenant that God would make with his people. He, he, he foretold of this in the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, uh, we saw that. Um, but in let me just read Ezekiel thirty six twenty five, which is a verse before what what I quoted before. It says, "I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your all your idols. I will I will cleanse you." And of course, then the next few verses goes on to say, "He'll give you new heart, put a new spirit in you." So Zechariah lines up perfectly with the promises of the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New Testament when he says that in that day a fountain of cleansing shall be opened and that fountain will cleanse the 
the people from all their sin and uncleanness. Um, since the Apostle John himself considers the prophecy of, of them mourning over the one whom they've pierced as fulfilled in the piercing of the Messiah, he says that so much in the Gospel of John on the day of crucifixion, it seems safe to say that the idea of this fountain, which springs forth to cleanse from sin, is also seen in John's description of blood and water that comes from Jesus' side on the on the cross. And to be honest, I've never really thought about that connection before. But blood and water were blood and water were the two elements in Leviticus that were used for cleansing uh, in the Old Testament as the priests offered those rituals which pointed to the fulfillment that Christ would bring. So the picture we see here is that of Jesus laying down his life to sacrifice himself and offer the blood of the sacrifice and the cleansing sprinkling of water to atone for the sins of the people once and for all time. Now, I do realize that um, the blood and water is uh, it's a it's a symbol of cleansing. It was the blood of Christ that symbolized the, his his atoning death that actually pays for sin. But I just Zechariah being a priest, you got the mourning over the piercing, and then the fountain of cleansing, which uh, shows the blood and water of the of the of the old covenant being referenced in the new covenant right after the piercing. It, it just all seems like it ties together to show forth this um cleansing forgiveness power this this uh fountain that's open to to uh to cleanse men from their sin uh the fountain itself uh, i don't think zechariah actually means the fountain is this hole that they pierced in the side and blood and water come out uh the fountain is jesus himself the fountain is his atoning death and so that is the 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 fountain that's going to be open for cleansing and so while they are mourning for the one whom they have pierced and while god will pour out a a spirit that um is mournful over sin and convicted over sin he also gives a fountain that will cleanse and wash all that sin away um and so the real application to this is that those who mourn over their sin and the one who the one who gave himself for them um have a fountain of hope available to them what a what a message of hope uh and good news uh <laughs> for those who are convicted and cut to the heart because of their sin and the impossibility of being righteous in their own strength. I mean, these people will mourn over their sin and cry out to God in despair. And Zechariah uh, speaks candidly about that. But they will receive cleansing and forgiveness in the fountain of Jesus' blood that's been shed at Calvary. There just simply aren't sufficient words to describe the... um, I don't know, the the awe and the thankfulness that we should feel at being allowed to come into his presence uh, because of such a sacrifice. But but And here's the amazing thing. God's grace doesn't just stop there. The fountain that has been opened to us cleanses us from all the penalty of sin. Uh, there's 
no more fear in living because we know that we are clean before God because of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Um, there's no more worry that we are not measuring up to the perfect standard of God because Jesus himself uh, kept the standard of God's law perfectly. And he stands in our place bearing our sin and giving us his righteousness. But there's even more than that. In verse 2 of Zechariah 13, it says, And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Not only will he give grace and forgiveness, but this grace, it'll be a transformative grace in the lives of his people. On that day, the day that you know this fountain opens to cleanse the people, God himself will cut off the idols from among his people they won't even be remembered he says when a man is born again by the spirit of god the heart is changed so that sin and idolatry are are things that are hated and shunned god's um, god himself implants an inherent love for him and a desire to serve him in the heart that belongs to him you know of course, we know that this doesn't mean that, that Christians don't ever sin or that we don't have to struggle through sin and, and idols as they pop up in our lives. But 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 God has removed the love of these things from the believer. He will the believer will struggle with sin. Um, but from the day of his new birth, uh, it'll always be a struggle with sin. I had uh, conversations with a young man a, a week ago or so about repentance in the Christian life. Life. He he looked at sin as if it were fun and something to be you know joked about. Um, he would readily admit that a certain thing was indeed wrong in the eyes of God, but he you know of course he he smile and he say that God you know God's just gonna have to forgive me because I don't really have any intention of changing. Uh, the problem with this view was that he didn't truly despise sin. He, he, he didn't really in his heart know that it was wrong. He actually enjoyed it. He longed for it. He understood that it was against God's law and you know, he emphasized that he believed in Jesus, but but he didn't have a desire to follow Christ's commands. Uh, this is contrary to what the Bible itself says about those who've been born again. Uh, this this concept is not struggling with sin. This is a man who's still a slave to sin. Uh, but on the other hand, I also know those who have repeatedly sinned in a certain way, and they cannot keep back the tears because of it. They they hurt over it, and they absolutely absolutely would do anything to be free from the sin that keeps haunting them. If it were in their power, they would do whatever is necessary to keep from it. And this is what struggling with sin looks like. It doesn't mean that you won't ever do it again or or that you are free from falling into sin. It's a... it's a there's a hatred there, a loathing of that sin in your heart. Um, you know there there's still maybe moments of weakness, but an intense hatred of sin and a willingness to see it cut out, whatever the cost. Um, it, it that is indicative of the the changed heart that's struggling with sin. This is the heart that God gives His people. That's what He said. 
He says, on that day, the fountain of forgiveness is open, and he himself, this is God working, he himself will remove the idols uh, from the land. It's not that his people will just be really good, you know, the good people. And you better start doing better, you know, and, and start living a moral life if you want God, you know, God's approval. No, that's not it at all. God says he will be the one who removes the idols and even the remembrance of them for the land. Make sure you understand that last part, removing the remembrance of them from the land. He will remove even the remembrance of those idols. Now, this is speaking of a total and utter rejection of this these things. His people with their new hearts will reject those idols and false teachings that characterized their lives before conversion. God not only promises to deliver them from the penalty of sin, he promises to deliver them from the power of sin as well. They're no longer slaves to sin's dictates to do whatever sinful nature tells them to do. He will remove uh, all these things and and even the remembrance of them. Now, uh, I don't think that I don't think that it means that God's people are going to walk around going, "Did I used to be an idolater?" can't even remember what that was. No, he's talking about the rejection of these things. The rejection. I will. I will. I will get rid of these things. Is what God's saying. But if, if we move into verse three, he says he also says that he will remove the false prophets and the false teachings that so hinder the gospel from going forth and to the people. Uh, now, of course, there will always be those who pervert the teachings of God and the way of salvation. You've seen that through history. We still see it today. But God is saying here that they will not hinder his people from coming to know him. God will always have a remnant of grace that loves him by the Spirit of God and will give their allegiance to no other, uh, regardless of how well they can speak or, or what fantastic prophecy they espouse. False teachers will not be able to lead uh, his people astray. Uh, they won't be able to to lead them into into permanent area er, error. Let's put it that way. And verse three says, "And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord.' And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies." Now, when the believer's heart is changed, he also has a burning desire for the Word of God. And therefore, false prophecies and false doctrines about God, uh, they're, they're not tolerated in his heart. Um, here, Zechariah shows us uh, the picture of the person who claims to prophesy for God, but is, I mean, he's being rejected by his own family because he tells lies in the name of God. Uh, I mean, this, is, this couldn't be a more relevant issue. Uh, today. Uh, there are perhaps more people claiming to teach things from God that actually go against God's word today than any other time. Perhaps, uh, you know, unfortunately, and you still got the the masses lining up to have their ears tickled as as those people are, are deceiving and being deceived, but it, it's not so with God's people. Those who have been born again by God's spirit, now they may be led into error for a time, but God himself will not allow his children to apostatize from the church or from the truth. 
We aren't talking here about matters of preference or things that are not essential to the Christian faith. We have freedom in, in Christ to follow our own conscience as the Spirit leads. We don't enforce legalistic mentality on other people about what you wear and you know those kind of silly things. Uh, we have even freedom in secondary issues to, uh, you know believe different things about what texts say, but there are some essential things that are definitional to the Christian faith, and in these things, we must have unity. For example, let me give you an example. Uh, One can't call himself a Christian and deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Jesus himself said that if a person does not have the Son, then they don't have the Father. And the only way to the Father is through the Son. So to deny the ontological relationship between the Father and the Son is to deny the very words of Jesus and the means by which salvation comes. You cannot come to God, per se, unless you come through God the Son. You can't come to the Father without the Son. And likewise, I mean, I could go into a long dissertation about that, but uh, we can't deny the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the atonement, or the physical resurrection from the dead. These things are essential to the Christian faith. Um, now, what I want to show you is from uh, the fact that believers are protected from permanently apostatizing from the truth. Uh, this is shown to us in First John chapter 4. So let me just read that and, and, and talk a little bit about that because that almost sounds, I mean, all of us know believers who are, are let off into error in, in one form or another, uh, but a true believer will be, will be brought back to the truth. And so this this is specified in John, First John chapter 4. So let me read it just so you have an idea about where I'm coming from. First uh, John is a book that gives believers tests by which they can know that they have eternal life. And one of those tests is uh, it's a God-given faith in the truth, uh, belief in in orthodox doctrine, you could say it that way. Most of us have been steeped in the church and have heard uh, the verse that says, you know, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I mean, it's a wonderful verse that we cling to, and rightly so. But so often the context of that verse is missed or or it's misapplied. What John is talking about here is the fact that God has his spirit inside us so we will not be permanently led astray into damnable error. Now, let me to show you that, let me look at that text for a minute and, and follow John's argument with me. Okay, so uh, I'm going to read it from 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. So if you have a Bible, I, I, I don't know if I've told you this in, in these podcasts, but it's often good to look at your own Bible as we're reading these things because uh, I'm definitely fallible. I mean, there was one time in just this series that, that I you know, was talking about this whole section being chapters 10 and 12, and I was meaning in my mind chapter 12 and 14. So follow along with me, 1 John chapter It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And this is the reason why he says, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now he's saying, look, you need to test the spirits. And the reason that you need to test them is because they're not all from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I'm talking about people who corrupt the doctrine of of truth. 
And it says, verse 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. He says, this is how you're going to know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, there was uh, um, people that were called docetists, and that they were saying that they were corrupting the the church by saying that Jesus wasn't a real man. He only looked like a man. He only had the appearance of reality. He was actually totally divine, uh, not any part human, uh, and those things. And this is the error that he was he was confronting at this time. And it says. It says, uh, "It says this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard is coming. Every this is how you're going to know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ uh, is from God. The one who does not is not from God." And then verse four says, "Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Who is them? You are from God and have overcome them." He's talking about the false prophets, the false spirits, those who are bringing error. And he said, "This is why you have overcome them." For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do you see how the greater is he is in you is meant to show us that we have we are protected by the spirit of God from straying from the truth of God into into error, doctrinal error that would uh, lead to an apostasy from the Christian faith. Doesn't mean that you can't be, you know, led into error for a time or something like that, but God will not allow his children it's not up to me uh to keep myself um saved so to speak i don't even like using that kind of language to it's not up to my it's not up to my uh my intellect or my goodness or my study to to keep myself in the truth the truth is true and by the spirit of god it's applied to my life it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to study don't go don't take this and and fall off in the ditch on the other side you got to have balance but what this is saying is that the god who is in us uh is uh, is greater than those false spirits that are preaching Lies and spirits that are not from God, false prophets that have gone out into the world, just like First John four one says, um, God is protecting His people. It's as simple as that. And there is coming a day when those who would prophesy falsely would rather be known as ditch diggers than false prophets. Going back to Zechariah chapter thirteen verse four, it says, "On that day." Every prophet will be ashamed of his visions when he prophesies. Remember, we're still talking about the false ones who speak lies. Uh, He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil. For a man sold me in my youth. I'm a slave, is what he's saying. Verse 6 says, And if anyone asks him, What are these wounds on your back? He will say, The wounds I, I received in the house of my friends. Now, think about this. When God brings forth the truth, 
Every error error will be exposed. And those who would desire the mantle of prophet, which is what Zechariah is describing in saying the hairy cloak, you know, this was the dress of the prophets, like Elijah wore a camel's hair and, and John the Baptist wore the camel's hair. But, uh, but these people will fear to put on that mantle with the intent to deceive people because the Lord is just and mighty and he will repay those who dishonor his name and speak things that he's not spoken. The point is that the Lord himself will make sure in his sovereign power and will that his truth and his promises will go forth. Woe to those who would even attempt to speak lies in the name of God. He will bring absolute shame upon them so that they will even lie about where their wounds of judgment came from. They say, I received these in the house of my friends. But but God's not finished yet uh, in, in speaking about this. He's shown us that he will give his people hearts that mourn over their sin and the Messiah, but he will also bring forth a fountain of cleansing from the death of Christ, which will cleanse the people totally from their sin. But what about God's judgment? I mean, that's a question to ask. Isn't, isn't God perfectly just? How could he just open up a fountain and forgive sin. How can he do those things? Uh, The next few verses explain the gospel perfectly, and they will find their fulfillment in the very words and actions of Jesus in the New Testament. The first part of verse 7 is absolutely amazing. It says, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. That's just part of verse 7. Here God explains how his justice is going to be satisfied. How this, how this fountain of cleansing is going to be open. How is it possible that God, who is perfectly just, can just wink his eye and forgive mankind's sin? Uh, What about punishment? What about justice? He says, he will bring forth the sword of his judgment, and he will bring it down with all his wrath. There will be judgment. The question is, but on whom will this sword strike? Will God bring the sword of his wrath on all those wicked people who have defied his name and rejected his commands? No. That is the amazing part. He'll bring forth the sword of justice. He will strike down his own shepherd, the one who stands next to him, the one who is side by side with him. And John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, face to face with God. That's what pros means in that verse. Uh, and the word was God. Think about this for a moment. Here you have the purpose and plan of the Godhead to bring forth salvation to the world. The the Father explains that he will bring the sword of his wrath against his son so that the wicked and the sinful can be justified in his sight and his people can come into perfect relationship with him. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, there's also a sense in which the prophecy is speaking uh, of Zechariah as God's shepherd. If you remember in the last chapter, God told Zechariah to take the mantle of shepherd of the people as he become 
he became a foreshadowing uh, of the perfect shepherd who was to come. That's Jesus, of course. But while this is true, Zechariah can't be the ultimate fulfillment of the death of God's shepherd. Uh, it, I mean, in fact, Jesus himself quotes this verse in Matthew twenty six thirty one, speaking of himself being struck. He says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will, will be scattered. Jesus himself applied this prophecy to himself and the ministry that he would fulfill. So what we're seeing here is a picture of what scholars call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is covenant between the Father and the Son. Before creation, before there was anything created, the Father purposed to send his Son for the sin of the world, and the Son purposed to take on flesh and give himself as a sacrifice for the world. This is the picture that's drawn for us. The Father brings forth the sword of justice, and instead of dropping it on those who deserve it, us, he brings it down upon his own son, who has willingly given himself to be the sacrifice that this judgment will fall upon. Now, we can also see this in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. In verse 4 of John chapter 17, he prays, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Um, this covenant of redemption is... I mean, it's amazing to me that, yes, the Father would uh, decide to send the Son because He loved the world, but the Son would also give Himself freely and, and assent to becoming, uh, taking the form of a man and becoming likened to His servant to, to give Himself a sacrifice for sin. Um, but it's it's through this it's through the the reality of the death and and the resurrection of Christ the the coming uh, the incarnation and the atonement that we have the assurance that we are accepted by God we know that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted uh, this God didn't purpose to send his son and then not accept his sacrifice the son didn't purpose to come and fulfill God's judgment and it not be fulfilled God's judgment was poured out when he struck the shepherd and it was poured out in full we know this because the father raised Jesus from the dead vindicating him and exalting him as the God man to his right hand to rule and reign on the throne justice has been served the shepherd has been struck and the guilty have been justified now because man sinned against the holy god man must be punished for his wickedness and he must atone for that sin but but man is not able to make the perfect atonement in the justice of god only god himself who is perfect could do that so the problem is solved as god the son takes the form of a man the flesh of a man and as a perfect man a god man who is 100% god 100% man his two natures are are combined but not mixed he is able to do for sinful man what no other could possibly do i don't know about you but the more i think about that the more wondrous and amazing it is to me uh, this passage in zechariah is definitely on Jesus' mind when he tells the people that he is the good shepherd because he says, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And so he, he was referring to the prophecy that the shepherd of the people will be struck by the sword and killed on behalf of the sheep. 
so this is going this is you, you see a stream a line running all the way through underlying in the New Testament of these prophecies that the one who would come and how they're fulfilled in the life and the ministry and the death of of, uh, of Christ but that isn't all Zechariah speaks of as the shepherd is struck the rest of verse 7 and verse 8 says this is what it says strike the shepherd the sheep will be scattered I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land declares the Lord two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive now this is primarily what Jesus had in mind in Matthew when he said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. The idea was that his disciples were going to scatter when he was struck. And indeed, they did scatter when their leader was crucified um, or, and arrested. Uh, in fact, they were, they were running scared all the way up until the Spirit descended upon them at Pentecost. But just like we've seen before, there's also another fulfillment in view. After Jesus is crucified and the church grows exponentially through the period of the Acts. The the Jewish nation continues to reject Jesus and deny the truth of of the church. Um, of course, the you know there always remained a remnant. The true Israel who worshipped Jesus is the remnant, uh, and that's what they were for the first. You know, section of Acts. There were all Jewish believers, all Jewish members of the church, but the majority of the of the nation rejected their Messiah. And finally, in seven seventy A.D., God brought irrevocable judgment on the nation by bringing the Romans to Jerusalem to destroy the temple. They, they destroyed the temple, the city, and they destroyed biblical Judaism forever. The Judaism of the Bible did not survive that destruction. Since then, there have been no sacrifices. There have been no no temple worship. There have been no Levitical you know uh, rituals and all those kind of things. Uh, there is a form of Judaism today, but it's not a biblical one. It's not one from the Old Testament. It was as if God wiped it off the face of the earth. Josephus documents the destruction of the city and the killing and enslaving of the people in, in 70 AD. Uh, over a million people, over a million people died in the siege when Titus attacked the city. They were throwing bodies over the wall uh, and there was such a, a pile of them outside the city that Titus himself looked on it with uh, disgust and, and and was like, you know, couldn't believe that this was happening. The siege lasted three and a half years, uh, and it was as if hell itself was unleashed on the city if you were those that were living in the city. The people starved. They they turned on each other. Lawlessness, uh, murder, and destruction raged inside the city, uh, and the Romans were just waiting patiently outside the city, um, blocking off all food, blocking off those coming in and those going out. Uh, only a small number of people remained alive. But this has always been what God prophesied. Only a remnant would remain faithful and obey him. That remnant was found in Jesus Christ. Those That little core of people that started with those 12 Jewish men that was 
preaching and teaching only in Jerusalem until the death of Stephen and it was those that was that they were preaching that they were the true Israel the fulfillment to all the promises the fulfillment to all the prophecies each time you see Peter stand up in the first uh, you know throughout the first six verses of uh, chapters of Acts and when you see Stephen's uh, great sermon before he's stoned to death uh, Jesus his death burial resurrection is always linked to the fathers Abraham Isaac the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the the promises that he made to Abraham the promises that he made to David Jesus is the fulfillment of these things so although destruction and devastation came upon God's people throughout history he there has been and there always will be a remnant of God's people that will be victorious despite all the suffering that they endure Finally, in verse 9, God speaks of this remnant that we've been talking about, saying, And I will put this third, the third that survived, remember two-thirds will be struck and a third will survive. He says, I will put this third in the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Surely uh, you know that twice in the New Testament Peter references the fact that it's the believers in Christ who are going through the fire and being refined as one does silver and gold. Uh, in these prophecies were no doubt upon his mind uh, the remnant that God has chosen in himself those who worship Jesus in spirit and truth the remnant of God's people they're going to be put through the fire they're going to be refined as silver they're going to be tested through the, the trial and, and tribulation and finally at the end they're going to come out and they're going to be his people and they're going to say the Lord is my God God will inevitably fulfill his promise and, and these people this remnant will be his people and he'll be their god this is this is the fulfillment of the promise made to abraham and the fathers and and it's ultimately fulfilled in jesus christ yes this remnant will be put through the fire as god refines them and perfects them but in the end they'll call upon his name just as the new testament proclaims jesus is the name that has been raised above every other name and in the name in this name that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess it is this name by which all men must be saved there is no other name under heaven um, there will come a day when all his people will call upon his name and through that name they will be his people and he will be their god this is the fulfillment of of the covenant that started in the very early pages of Genesis and continues as a stream throughout Scripture. Um, the question the question is: Are we known by that name? The question is: Are you one of this remnant? Just like in the days that Zechariah was prophesying and preaching, there were people saying i am one of these we are his people we are you know descendants of jacob and all these things you see that in 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 jesus day as well uh john chapter 8 you know he's arguing with the pharisees about who their father is uh jesus says you're of your father the devil they say we, we have but one father our father's god and so the question that's asked here is is a, is a simple one um in chapter 12 and chapter 13 you have god saying i'm going to put a spirit 
in, in them, and it's going to cause them to mourn. It's going to cause them to mourn over their sin, mourn over the one whom they've pierced. But I'm also going to open a fountain of cleansing that will cleanse my people. And yes, you know, two thirds, uh, two thirds are going to be uh, are going to go off into judgment. But I'm going to save a remnant, and that remnant, I'm going to. I'm going to put them through the fire, and I'm going to refine them. And the fulfillment of these things is in the early parts of the book of Acts. Jesus Christ and the the apostles and the converts in Jerusalem that uh, were going forth, you know, uh, 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 proclaiming his name. And so... These promises are for you and for me as well. Therefore, all us Gentiles, so to speak, because in those in those early chapters of Acts, the gospel and the church didn't stay in Jerusalem. When Stephen was martyred, that spread the church out, and the Gentiles began to come into this truth. So we have the remnant of Israel that accepted Jesus and preached in the temple, and, and people streamed into Jerusalem to hear this message. But then we have it opening to the entire world. We have it opening to not just Jerusalem and Judea, but to Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. We we have it opening where God, all the people can come and have an opportunity to be part of the remnant uh, of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, in Revelation, it says uh, uh, it's very interesting in, in Revelation where it talks about the the multitude. Um, I'll just say this, and then then I'll go. That multitude that no man can number is the same crowd that is mentioned a few verses before that is you know 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel if you go and you look at that uh, John is saying he says he says I saw and I heard two different times the first he says um he says, I heard, you know, he was looking for the one who could open the scroll and, you know, s- save the people and all that. And, and he, he said, I heard was the lion of Judah. He says, but I turned and what I saw was a lamb slain before the foundation of the of the earth. In the same way, this multitude, he said, I heard the number of them, 12,000 from this tribe, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe uh, of Israel. But when I turned, I saw a multitude that no man could number from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. You and I are part of the remnant of God. We're part of the people who worship God in truth, in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in his name, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in the death that he died for you, Uh, You are part of that holy remnant, that royal priesthood, royal ambassadors, and more than conquerors in Christ Jesus.